Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the Catechism Bible Memory work. It's a table of duties of civil government. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, 3-4. All right, let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's uh, evening prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, so picking back up in Mark chapter 2. We left off at verse 12. So, or we'd finished verse 12, where we left off verse 13, I guess. All right, so uh, here we have the, the calling of Matthew. Um, let me get a paper towel real quick. I'll be right back. Wipe this off. I don't know what I'm going to write on the board, but it'll probably be something. So, uh, might as well be prepared. We'll go Mark 2.13 to who knows where we're going to go, right? We'll get somewhere. All right, so uh, calling him Matthew. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. All right, so um, the, it says Levi 
here, right? Uh, you don't get this in Mark's gospel, but in uh, Matthew's gospel, who this this is Matthew, uh, you, he tells you that he undergoes a name change, right? That his originally his name's Levi, and then Jesus ends up calling him Matthew, and that's a uh, pretty standard uh, for not only the apostles, but if you think back in the Old Testament, God would do this to people's names, right? That uh, Abram is called Abraham. Jacob is called Israel. Um, all there's a bunch of different name changes, right? And that's because names mean something. And um, the, especially if you think about um, conversion, right? Of Jesus calling someone to Himself, uh, it, in a way, it's a it's a whole change of identity, right? That um, before this this person was lost, and now they are in Jesus. And so their identity changes, and so in the, in, the, in some cases that involves a name change, right? Saul, Saul becomes Paul. Um, so Levi here becomes Matthew. Um, like I said, we don't get that here, but then later on Mark's just going to talk about Matthew. So uh, Mark is, as as we know, right? Mark is very truncated. It's uh, very action packed, right? So he doesn't kind of waste time with some of these details. He just you you figure it out, right? Um, but uh, Levi or Matthew is the son, the son of Alphaeus. He's a tax collector, or a, um, an older translation is called a publican. And uh, publican, this the word in the Greek there, which is more related to the word publican, it literally means like a tax farmer. So it's like kind of two words. It's the the person who farms for taxes. And um, I kind of think that's you know what we should call the IRS now, right? Like t- tax farmers. <laughs> Kind of a nice, got a, it's got a nice ring to it, but um, that's a bigger farmer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Um, but what the you you may have heard this before, but what a tax collector was in the days of Jesus when you you basically had we're going to see this when we talk about the Herodians in a little bit too. You had the um, government was run by in, the, in this in this place, right in the uh, kind of three areas where Jesus operates in Judea and Samaria and Galilee, there's um, control by the Herodians or the Herod Herod's court, right? And uh, this is a Roman-controlled space, but the the people there are primarily Jewish, and amongst amongst other things. But the the Jews and the Romans, for the most part, are working together. There's some tension there, but um, the it, it's it's much more of a let's say like a vassal state of Rome at, at this time than it is a it's not fully Roman. They don't consider themselves Roman um, by by any means, either ethnically or even really politically. But they recognize they're occupied by the Roman government, and that's kind of who's in charge. Well, what the publicans were, the tax collectors, were uh, ethnic Jew, like people from Judea, so ethnic Jews, who were would work for the, they'd kind of hire themselves out to the Roman government to go and collect these taxes for people, right? And when you have this kind of um, empire with these vassal states, uh, not only are there taxes collected for Caesar, right? So Jesus would talk about render to Caesar what is Caesar's, 
But then the smaller governors, right, want to get their own little taxes too. And so these are what the tax farmers would do. They'd go out to farm for taxes. They'd collect little, basically like hidden fees for people like Herod. And uh, that's what Matthew was doing. And so um, well, when we talk about the Herodians, we'll see this as well. But there are disagreements among amongst the Jews about how they should relate to the Romans. And um, one of these disagreements is that for the most part, your average everyday Jew really did not like the tax collectors, right? Because, well, well, they were taking their money, right? There wasn't, there weren't even rightful taxes for the most part, right? They were kind of extra taxes. And uh, so, and uh, Levi or Matthew here is, is one of these publicans and you see the Pharisees despise for the tax collectors and sinners, what they call tax collectors and sinners, just kind of a technical term, um, when Jesus eats with them in just a little bit at, at Matthew's house. And so that's the kind of um, background on the tax collector. And when you think about, well, we'll get a list of the apostles uh, here at the, or the 12 disciples at the end of chapter two, I believe, or no, into chapter, it's in chapter three, isn't it? Yeah. Um, We'll get a, yeah, in the middle of chapter three, we get the list of the apostles, or the, the 12 disciples, that is. And the group of disciples is rather interesting because it's it's what you could describe as like a ragtag group. I mean, it's very oddly diverse. So you have, for instance, um, these so far who's been called Peter, James, and John, right, have been called, and Andrew, and I guess maybe Philip, but that's maybe that's not in Mark's gospel yet. Maybe that's only in John's. I'm trying to remember. Anyway. Um, basically you have some like fishermen, some like everyday, just kind of working on the docks type of guys, right? Jewish descent. And then you have this other Jewish guy, Matthew now, who is probably in society hated by those guys, right? Who gets to join the group. Um, and then we're going to add people later on like Luke, right? Who's a Gentile physician, right? He's, he's not even a, he's not even Jewish. So, you get a very weird group of people that are the disciples, the 12, the, the 12 that are called. And so um, that's just something to think about. What Maybe we'll talk about that a little more when we get that list. But uh, it what part of what it shows, I think, just on the surface, is that Jesus did come for all men, right? He, he doesn't kind of, of the people that are in the world, that he's that he comes into, right? He kind of draws from all of them, right? He doesn't uh, just. It's not just a select type of person that that he calls to be one any of his disciples. All right. So um, then they go to Matthew's house. Okay. So verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and uh, quote unquote sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him meeting with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't know why the, um, this is the NIV. I don't know why it adds these quotations around sinners. Um, that, I mean, I know why it does, but it's a, 
a little too editorial for my liking. Um, the idea of the sinners, though, is these are, as you learn when you read the rest of the Gospels, is sinners are describing people like prostitutes, uh, people that are kind of the lower, what would be considered like the lower tier of society, I guess. Um, people who are not well-liked, people who are considered kind of criminals, or criminal-like activity, but um, they're not people who are, you know, behaving well in society, let's say. All right, so that, that's why it kind of includes quotations there, but um, people who are definitely not following the, the laws of the Old Testament in any regard. All right, but Jesus eats with them, and the... Uh, this is a major theme in Scripture that, and and one of, this is in some sense really a a claim to Jesus' divinity. The theme of eating with God is a constant theme throughout the Scripture. So if you th- go back all the way to Genesis one, um, God is provides food for them, right? And then what's the what's the big deal in the garden? is what trees they can and can't eat from, right? And God's there with them in the garden and they get to eat of the tree of life. And they, um, they're, in a sense, they're eating with God, right? And then they get kicked out of the garden and they can't eat with God anymore. And then um, what does God do when he institutes things like sacrifices? Well, then you get to eat with God again, right? And then... Uh, you can think about all these instances. So like in Genesis 18, when when the uh, angel of the Lord, the when I, what I would say is the pre-incarnate Jesus comes to Abraham, what does Abraham do? He, he makes a feast for them, right? And they eat together. And um, Moses, uh, there's that, that verse, right? When Moses is up on the mountain and he's taken up and, and he eats with, with God and the angels, and you get all, I mean, just all throughout the scripture, there's this theme. And then what, what does God do for his people in the wilderness? He feeds them with manna. And then uh, you can think about like David going in and eating the showbread. And there's uh, so many instances that we go. And then, and then of course, you, so that's all Old Testament. Go to Revelation. How is heaven described right how is the the throne of grace described well it's a wedding feast with the lamb right it's a feast where you get to eat with with god and of course um we would connect that uh in our in our new testament church to communion right that we get to eat with god right and this is how he gives himself to us in a physical way so it's no surprise then that in the gospels uh one of the things that happens is that jesus uh, eats with the people he wants to to be connected to, right? The people he wants to commune with, in a sense. And so you get this theme of uh, sometimes it's called table fellowship, um, but you, where you, they, Jesus has table fellowship with people, and um, this continues on, right? Throughout the Gospels, you get Jesus uh, right after his resurrection. What does he want to do with his disciples in John's Gospel? He wants to go have breakfast with them, right, on the seashore. Um, so. Uh, Jesus wants to eat with with people in order, and what that is showing is that's opening back up the gates of Eden, right? They get to go back and be with God again. And in other words, when he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, there is a sense of forgiveness there, 
of salvation. And in some ways, the, the, scribe, the scribes pick up on this, right? Like the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like, why would he be doing that? And it's not, I think it's more theological. It's not just this, oh, that's societally um, uncouth, right, for him to be eating with tax collectors and sinners. Um, it, there's something theological there that he has a communion with them that they don't like. And this is when you hear Jesus' response, you can tell that. So verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, this eating that he's doing with them, it's providing what he's been preaching about. It's providing forgiveness, right? He's he's opening himself back up to them. And what you can hear in Jesus' answer there also is that the tax, uh, not the tax, the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't think themselves to be sinners. They don't think that they need help. Right, so I got this good question in Bible study this morning. Um, we were talking about Ezekiel, something totally different. Uh, we're, but we were, ta- we were talking about how the Israelites don't listen to Ezekiel when he's preaching to them. And someone asked, why do people not want help when they so obviously need help, right? When you're trying to help people, when you're trying to preach to them, and they don't receive it. And that's exactly what goes on with the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Is that they don't think that they need help. And the reason that they don't think they need help is because they have too high of self-regard, right? They think that they are healthy. And that changes your whole relationship with Jesus, right? If you uh, think about it like the analogy he uses here is, is that someone who's sick and a doctor, right? Um, if you're healthy, right, you don't want to go to the doctor, right? In fact, like, Doctors are kind of scary if you're healthy, right? You're like, I don't need any of that in my life, right? But if you're sick, then you long to go to the doctor, right? If you're really sick, right? Um, and supposing it's a good doctrine, right? Again, all analogies fall apart at some point. But this is a, a perfect analogy for thinking about our, our spiritual state, right? Like if we are spiritually healthy, if we're spiritually perfect, right, and we don't need any help with our spiritual life at all, then Jesus coming and saying, I'm here to forgive you of your sins, that would be an offense, right? Um, In the same way that if you were healthy and the doctor said, here, I have some medicine for you to take, like you'd be like, no, I don't don't want any medicine, I'm fine. That's how the Pharisees are. But of course, we know that they are spiritually sick. And in fact, we are all spiritually sick, right? We're all born into sin and we need help. But if we can recognize that, right? If we can recognize that we are all equally sinful under the eyes of God and have all fallen short of his glory, then that changes our whole relationship with him, right? We are not at all opposed to 
receiving the gifts he wants to give, right? And so we can become like the crowds rather than the Pharisees who uh, try and trap him. We can become like the crowds who try and, by faith, come to him. All right. So verse uh, 18, yeah, we'll go 18 to, we'll just go 18 to 22. This is kind of an interesting passage here. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then from that day, and on that day, they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Okay, so a couple of things here. So Jesus says that, so people are asking, uh, how come your your disciples aren't fasting, right? Because it's common of the, uh, see, you know, John is this rabbi of sorts. Pharisees have their own rabbis, uh, all of which have their own disciples, kind of people who are learning from these different teachers. And fasting is a super common practice, and, and fasting is actually a good practice, right? Je- Jesus will talk about this um, I don't think really in Mark's gospel much, but like in Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about how to fast. However, um, there's this issue that comes up in Jesus' day where his disciples, the the ones he's calling, they're they're not fasting. Um, in fact, in just a second, they're going to go out and start uh, during the on the Sabbath picking grain in the grain fields, which also upsets the Pharisees. And why are they not fasting? Well, Jesus says it's because they are, in a sense, they're already at the wedding feast, right? They're at the, they, they have the bridegroom with them. And if, if you're already at the wedding, right? If, you, if you're a bride and you have your bridegroom with you, why would you be fasting? It, Jesus says basically, you know, look, this doesn't make any sense. And what, and, and what he's doing there is he's calling on some Old Testament imagery as well as something that, the rest of the New Testament will pick up on, which is that, and he's kind of making this explicit now, that Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, all over the place in the prophets, and the best prophet for this is Hosea, but all over the place in the prophets, you have Jesus calling what the nations are doing and what Judah and Israel fall into temptation with is adultery. Now, what what they're actually doing, what we'd say like maybe on paper, is idolatry. They're worshiping false gods. But God calls that through the prophets adultery because he, they're leaving the one that made a covenant with them, a marriage-like covenant with them, and they're going after other gods, right? They're, uh, they're, it's like God made a marriage covenant with them and now they're breaking that marriage covenant by going after other gods, right? And the book of Hosea is great because Hosea, if you remember, is the prophet who God commands to marry a prostitute and she cheats on him and he's commanded to continue to, to go after her and to rescue her and to stay married to her. 
And that's an image of what God does for us, right? Even when we go after false gods, God continues to pursue us and to be our bridegroom, right, as the church. Now, Jesus says, so with that in mind, right, Jesus comes and says, look, I'm the bridegroom, right? The bridegroom is here with his disciples. The wedding is on. Why would they be fasting? This is a time of feasting, right? Because there's times of feasting and times of fasting. This is a time of feasting because Jesus has come. And then he adds on to this, uh, this kind of teaching, which sounds a little bit abstract, I guess, but um, no one sews a patch of unshrunk clothing cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making it tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine in the wineskins will be ruined. Puts new wine in new wineskins. So what he's saying there is that something different is happening. So it's, I, you know, I love the Old Testament. And um, if you've been to the Genesis Bible study, you know that I could probably just talk about the Old Testament the rest of my life and be happy. Um, I don't, you know, nothing against the New Testament, but the Old Testament, and to me in some ways, is actually more exciting than the New. But that said, there is an old covenant and a new covenant for a reason, right? Jesus does do something different in a way, right? It's a continuation. He did not come to abolish the law to to fulfill it. It is a continuation of what was old, but more is revealed here. Um, And this is kind of what we were talking about with the son of God stuff, that it's in some ways it's a surprise that Jesus is actually the son of God, right? They've been expecting the Messiah, expecting the Messiah, and they know that the Messiah is going to be born out of this line of people. And there's all these prophecies surrounding it. But then when Jesus comes and he turns out to be the Son of God taken on human flesh, it makes so much sense, but it's a little bit unexpected, and it is something brand new, right? Um, He is the new, perfect second Adam. And um, so I came across this quote. I wanted to share this as preparing for this. Uh, so Tertullian, um, I think third century, early church father, uh, he says about this, uh, the new wine symbolizes the good news, and this is the, the key line here, that cannot be compressed into the prevailing categories of the previous history of Revelation. Right? The new wine symbolizes the good news that cannot be compressed into the prevailing categories of of the previous history of Revelation. What he means by that is that this good news, this gospel that Jesus is preaching and the news of the Son of God incarnate in the flesh for the salvation of sins, uh, this is not something that can uh, simply be contained by continuing to do things the old covenant way. Right, So we're going to see in a second the Pharisees are still very concerned about what Jesus is and isn't doing on the Sabbath and um, what he's doing here with fasting and what his disciples are doing with fasting um, because in theory they're supposed to be fasting at this time for whatever reason. That's actually an interesting question. I wonder, I wonder what the context of the timing here is, like why they're, they're fasting. But in theory they're supposed to be fasting and they're not. And... 
What Jesus is saying is that what I'm doing now, you can't contain in these old covenant categories, right? Now, you have to be careful with that because realize he doesn't do away with the categories themselves, right? He doesn't do away with fasting um, and he doesn't do away with the Sabbath, but he does fulfill them and makes them new again. Right, so he says he doesn't say like just get rid of wine and get rid of wineskins as an as an operative category. He says this is new wine, put it into new wineskins. Right, um, this this is a, a a new piece of cloth. You got to put it on new new clothing. Right, so it um, it's an interesting thing here that he and I think we'll see. Um, this flesh out a little bit more in the this discussion about the Sabbath next. All right, the other thing I want to point out there, and not to get too allegorical, but um, I think it's always better to assume that nothing in the Bible is arbitrary, right? When Jesus speaks, there's a lot of depth and riches there. And uh, the analogies he uses here of wine and wineskins and cloth and garments are not arbitrary, Right? These are also huge themes throughout the scripture. Right? So if you take garments, for instance, you have the, uh, the, the fig leaves situation in the garden right? where they try and make for themselves garments that aren't successful, and then God has to make them garments by animal skins. And then uh, just off, off the top of my head here, you have in Isaiah the discussion of um, our, our works are as filthy rags before the Lord, but he's going to clothe us with his righteousness. You have in the New Testament, you have all this baptismal talk about the uh, garments of Christ's righteousness and Christ clothing us um, in our baptism. In Revelation, right, you have the, the saints that are dressed in white robes, washed in the blood of the lamb. So this theme of garments uh, is all over the place in the Bible, right? And, and here uh, Jesus says that... Um, He's making a new garment, basically, right? And then, of course, wine as well is another huge theme in the in the scriptures, um, specifically with the Passover meal and uh, and with Holy Communion. So, you, uh, I think it's always interesting, you know, that Jesus, when he speaks, he speaks in layers. And I, I want to go as far to say, like, oh, this, you know, he talks about wine, so obviously this is about communion or something like that. But it's not arbitrary. Right? It's not just random. Like he, he uses language and draws together themes. Um, one, just, I mean, I think it's good literature. Two, because uh, he's drawing a complete picture, if that makes sense. All right. Uh, so verse, uh, starting there, verse 23 then. So now we get into the Sabbath stuff. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields As his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions uh, were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house and ate the consecrated bread. We brought that up first a second ago, didn't we? Um, Which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. 
All right. Um, did we already do Son of Man stuff in Daniel last week? We did that, right? Yeah, okay. I'm not going to do that again then. All right. Um, so th- this, this really does flesh out kind of what we were just talking about with the connection with the Old Testament. So with the Pharisees, right, and the scribes, they're always looking for these kind of checklist series of laws that we can, um, you know, fulfill the law and then, you know, live our lives and, and not really need Jesus. We can get on with whatever the whatever it is that the Pharisees want to do, that they can live that way. And here Jesus is uh, walking along in the grain fields. And again, the grain fields, again, not in uh, grain fields, another theme in scripture, right? The the many grains of wheat and uh, just kind of a bread theme. You have manna, you have the feeding of the 5,000 is going to come up later. And uh, the, the disciples pick some of the grain heads and the Pharisees are like, why are they doing what is unlawful? And uh, again, the, these Pharisees, their idea of following the law here is, okay, the law says, we rest on the Sabbath day. That means we don't do work. Well, what does that mean? And they, you know, basically seem to have a list of things that they're not supposed to do on the Sabbath, right? So not supposed to go out in the field, um, not supposed to touch certain things, right? Basically just supposed to kind of sit around all piously and, and not do anything. Well, Jesus uh, makes it very clear when he, he's, he's already healed on the Sabbath, right? This is the problem with doing a gospel is that then we also like read gospel readings on Sundays and then throughout the week I you know visit people and talk about gospel readings and then the and you're in different gospels and everything gets kind of confused. Um, he drove out the evil spirit. Oh, he drove out the evil spirit on the Sabbath. All right, good. So he's already kind of their their ears are already perked and their eyes are already watching for him to do something again on the Sabbath. And um, he does this, right? But here Jesus is going to show, start to show what the real meaning of the law is, right? So the law he gives in the Old Covenant is not um, so that it can be turned into some kind of pharisaical checklist, right? And I think the verse that really sums this up, and I, I, I love this verse, is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? In other words, God gave his law for the good of the people. And it's that love of the neighbor that actually defines what is and isn't sin according to the law. It's not that man is made for the Sabbath and that there's some sort of, the law is this kind of, uh, perfectly narrowly defined idea that all man has to do is attain that and then they're then they're saved then they're good to go right it's not that man is made for the sabbath the sabbath was given for the good of man and so when jesus comes and he does things on the sabbath they're they're out of love right and so this is the question we always we if you remember when we went through the 10 commandments in the catechism class this is a question we always have to ask the question is not, what can I do and get away with, right? Not what can I do and, and attain the law, but how do I love best? And 
Um, the way I, I came up, I'm still kind of working on this, and another catechism class, an analogy dawned on me trying to describe this, that we should think of the Ten Commandments like diving boards, right? Where what, what the Ten Commandments provide for us is places where we can kind of dive off of God's will, and there's lots of possibilities as to where we can go from there in, in fulfilling that law, right? So the Sabbath, uh, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Well, part of that has to do with, you know, coming to church on Sunday and, um, you know, receiving his gifts and word and sacrament. But then another place you can go, right, from there is like daily devotions. Or another place you can go from the Sabbath is um, talking and thinking about like the the peace that we have in Jesus, right? And how to share that with one another. And Jesus is the master at this, right? Because, well, he's Jesus, so of course he's the master at, at fulfilling the law and loving. But um, whenever it comes to Jesus on the Sabbath, notice all the things that he does, right? He heals people, he saves people, um, he feeds the disciples, right? Now, does that in some sense involve work as far as like lifting a finger? Yes, but is that is that out of love or is it not, right? Um, and is he providing rest or is he not, right? And he is. And so he, uh, then this is where he concludes that he, the son of man, he's talking about himself, did that Daniel 7 stuff, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath, right? And it's, it's kind of funny that the Pharisees have made an idol out of one of God's laws, right, in a sense. Um, not what God really meant by that law, but in, what they, in their interpretation of this law, they've made an idol. And so he says, look, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, right? The, the, your idea of the Sabbath is not God, right? I'm God, and I'm Lord over the Sabbath. So... Um, they don't really like his response, but that's where we're at. All right, so then uh, that gets us to the end of chapter two. All right, I got about 15 minutes. Um, so let's pick up in chapter three there. And notice, uh, by the way, let's see, uh, before where we started today, where we ended last week, the with the man that was let down through the roof, the scribes and the Pharisees weren't actually really turned against him yet. Right? The scribes were actually kind of amazed by what he had done. But now uh, they first initially get upset when he eats with tax collectors and sinners like we talked about. And now they're questioning him on the Sabbath thing. And then now what we're going to see uh, here in the next six verses is that they are completely turned against him. So notice within the course of basically one chapter, right, from the middle of chapter two to the middle of chapter three, the scribes and the Pharisees are now hateful of Jesus, right? They went from interest, like interested and skeptical to this guy needs to die. So pretty fast turning. All right. This is part of Mark, right? Mark, the gospel is uh, action-packed. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking 
for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the, him on the Sabbath, right? So they're, now they're looking for it. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hands. So he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot to kill. Uh, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Okay, so like I said, very quick turning. Now, one of the things that just struck me as I was reading that is uh, we don't have to continue to hash it out, but notice how much time Jesus spends on this whole Pharisee Sabbath issue, right? Like, especially for Mark. Um, Mark's gospel is so action-packed, it normally goes from one thing to the next. But there's a solid, like, from verse 223 to, yeah, 1-6, there's this whole discussion about the Sabbath. And so I do think it's important, right? Like how we consider God's law is one of the big issues. Like, And this has been the, a big issue for the church basically forever. I mean, this has been debated as, as with, even within the church on how we're supposed to consider God's law. But I think, you know, if we're going to look to the Bible for, for help, um, this is a good place to go. That God gave us his law for our good, right? It's not solely uh, to accuse us or solely to make us feel bad for our sin. That's part of it, right? But he also gives us this example of a faithful uh, fulfilling of the law where he extends love through working on the Sabbath. And so these are things to think about, right? Um, all right, so I just wanted to point that out. What else do I want to talk about here? Okay, uh, why are they so mad at him all of a sudden? I think that there's a building up here and what you've what we've seen so far is yes Jesus is healing people yes he's um, restoring people's health casting out unclean spirits but remember what we've kind of been talking about up to this point is that the thing he really can't stop talking about and that he really wants to be doing is forgiving sins and preaching right that's what he's really all about and i, I and i think you get the key back in that verse uh, 17 from verse 2 it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That Jesus is implicitly calling them sinners, right? And they don't like that. And they've he's made it very clear that uh, this is why he's here and that this is who he is. And this has made them now extremely angry. So it's forgiveness, right? And and also the the so forgiveness is part of it. The other part is that that new wineskin thing too. The the way that the Pharisees and the scribes function is based on the old covenant, right? And if Jesus is basically out, outrightly saying, um, "Look, the old covenant's over; the new covenant's here," that means that their way of 
their their religion basically is being done away with. It's being fulfilled and fulfilled in Christ and continued on in something new. So that's a big problem for them, right? They're not just going to be able to keep being scribes and Pharisees per se. So I think that's why they're mad is the, those two things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like he's going at basically the heart of the Pharisaical religion, which is that I I think so. This is something I've I've thought about a lot, is that really what Pharisaism is is not this. Obs- so sometimes I think when you get you hear about Pharisaism in the Bible, you can get the impression that it's just about ritualism, and like basically ritual bad, like authenticity good or something like that. And that's not really what Pharisaism is. It doesn't matter if it's ritual or something else. I think what Pharisaism is, is having a system of belief where at the end of the day, you don't really need Jesus, right? Because you can have a system of belief that doesn't have to do with ritual that's still Pharisaical, right? Um, I see this, the way I see Pharisaism in the LCMS, to be blatantly honest, is that there are lots of people out there that are members on LCMS church rosters, and they think basically because I'm confirmed and I'm baptized and I show up around Christmas and Easter that I'm going to heaven. Like, that's, that's Pharisaism. It's not ritualistic. It's not like I go out and like I, you know, do these cleanse, do these hand cleansings like the Pharisees did, or that I, you know, don't raise a finger on the Sabbath or whatever. But it's like I have my system, and I have it worked out with God that I don't really need like an active relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, anyway, why am I talking about this? So uh, the. What Jesus is doing is he's getting at the heart of the Pharisees. Like that, uh, look, this system that you've built up, it's not the system of God, right? It's not love. It's not love fulfilling, like the law fulfilled in love. And um, yeah, so so he is really making them question these, the heart of these, the, of what they believe. And, and he's really going at it, so... Um, it's a it's a big problem for them, and they they turn on him extremely quickly. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the shriveled hand as, as well. So um, there's this famous Lutheran book you may have heard of it called Law and Gospel. Um, you know we talk about Law and Gospel, but there's actually a book by that name by the first president of the LCMS, Walther, CFW Walther, and um, in that book. One of the notable points is that he uses this uh, narrative of Jesus here with the man with the shriveled hand to describe how we receive Jesus in um, what we'd call something like – oh, I knew I was going to use the board eventually. Okay, um, Passive grace, right? Or um, what we could also – like in a more technical term – called uh, monergism, right? 
So the idea here is that when we are saved, when we receive the gift of salvation by Jesus Christ, it is something that Christ is giving to us that we are, it's not an active work on our behalf, right? We're passively receiving his grace, his favor, right? So monergism, um, this is like, ergism is like from the word energy and mon is from the prefix mono, right? So one way energy, if you will, right? So God comes to us, we don't come to him. God saves us, we don't save ourselves. And Walter used this, this, picture here of the man with the shriveled hand to describe that. So when, whenever we think about receiving salvation or receiving grace, uh, receiving um, the Holy Spirit working faith in us, receiving his word, uh, you know, sometimes it can be difficult for people because it's like if someone is converted to Christianity, in some ways it feels like they did something. Right, it feels like they made a choice to follow Jesus. Um, that you know, I say someone has kind of a Damascus Road experience, and they um, that they're listening. Somehow they're they end up in a church. They're listening to a sermon, and you know they're they're hearing the word preached, and they realize that they're a sinner, and they they realize what Jesus did for them on the cross, and and they're converted, and then they walk out of there, and they. They're going to live their life differently now because they're a Christian. To them, it can feel like, man, I just, I changed my whole life, right? Like I just made, like I, I had these realizations and I am now going to follow Jesus. And it can kind of become this I, I, you know, this is what I did. This is what I thought type of thing. This is what I prayed. Um, and that can, and, and I'm going to say why that can be fine, but from a theological perspective, we should be clear that, well, actually, they didn't really do anything, right? They just received the gift of the Spirit, right? They received the Word, and that bore fruit in their heart. That was a work of God. Now, um, the thing that's great about this image, right? Oh, and I should actually tie this together, right? So Walter says that's like the withered hand, right? The withered hand can't do anything. It's withered, right? The hand can't move. It can't, you know open or close, it's it's withered. All it can do is sit there and, and receive God's gift of healing, right? Now, um, for, so from a theological perspective, that's, that's the passivity, right? That's the monergism. Now, what I think is, is also worth noting is that there's a little bit of nuance here in that when we receive that gift, as we have received that faith that, uh, that the Holy Spirit has worked in us through the preaching of the word, there, we are given a new spirit, and that spirit wants to participate with Jesus, right? That spirit wants to do what Jesus says. And so this is also the, um, Jesus calls the man to faith, and the man does do something. He stretches out his arm, right? It's that, you know, Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and he stretches it out, and it, in that act, it's restored. And so we need to be careful here that we're clear that we don't save ourselves, right? We're saved by grace alone. We're not saved by any kind of work that we do, but that we do respond to the word of faith that's preached to us, right? 
And so the hand is withered. It can't do anything, but he can do what Jesus commands and stretch and stretch it out, right, to, re- to receive that gift. So it's, it's kind of a nice image in that way um, that it captures a little bit of that nuance that the guy's not really doing anything, but he is, in a way, participating with what Jesus calls him to, if that makes sense. Okay. So anyway, just wanted to point that, that image out there. All right. Um, oh, let's talk about the Herodians. All right. Oh, let's not talk about the Herodians. Um, all right. Now I got to draw a line here. Okay. So we'll talk about the Pharisees and the Herodians next time. And uh, we'll pick up there. But we got through, through chapter uh, 3 there. So we got through... Three, three, five. I'm just gonna write this down so that I remember next time in case I forget. All right, three, five. All right. Any final questions or comments on any of that? All right. Speeding right along. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have worked faith in us and that you have come to fulfill the law and that. Through Jesus, we have salvation from our sins. We pray that you would always keep Jesus before our eyes, especially this Advent and Christmas season as we await his coming. And we pray that you would bless us today as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that the hearts and minds and ears of all would be open to the preaching of your word and to the reception of your gifts. We pray this through your Son, the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.